We are in our message series on the life of Jesus. As you probably know, we're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order to discover for ourselves who Jesus really was, what he really said, and what he really did. It's our goal to know him and his word for ourselves firsthand. And last week, we heard Jesus share one of his most famous teachings, the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you missed that teaching, I want to encourage you to listen online because there is an incredible second layer to those scriptures in which we clearly see that it is Jesus himself who is the Good Samaritan. This week, we're looking at a simple interaction that Jesus will have with two sisters. It's just five verses in Luke's gospel, but it is profound. And the reason it's profound is because Jesus will tell one of these sisters directly that there is something even more important than serving God. It's only going to be five verses, but I didn't want to rush through anything else because what is in this teaching is so important. It's simply profound, and it is profoundly simple. So let's jump in. We're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 38. This is what it says. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. From John 11, we know that this is the household of the siblings Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, all dear friends of Jesus. And this village is Bethany. It was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about two miles from the temple. It was considered to be just outside of Jerusalem, away from the business of the big city. And Bethany still fell within the one day's journey distance that you were allowed to travel on a Sabbath day. So it was very popular with people who had come to Jerusalem for the feasts because they could attend all the festivities and the rituals at the temple and still be allowed to walk back to where they were staying in Bethany. It would still fulfill the Sabbath rituals requirements. You may recognize the name Lazarus because Jesus will famously raise him from the dead when we reach John 11. And you may also remember that this Mary is the same Mary who will anoint Jesus's feet with costly perfume and dry his feet with her hair. And I kind of feel obligated to defend Mary every time that we talk about her because we tend to get these interactions mixed up. Everybody goes, oh yeah, that's Mary, the one who was probably a prostitute. But this is not the same Mary. There are two very different stories. The Mary that we're reading about now appears, most scholars hold, in Matthew, Mark, and the Gospel of John. And Jesus says that she is anointing his feet for his death as one would anoint a dead body. She pours this costly oil, this costly perfume on the feet of Jesus. And the objection comes from Judas who says, oh, what a waste. We could have spent all this money on the poor. We know that Judas really wanted to simply skim that money as he had been stealing from Jesus throughout his ministry. The different account appears in the Gospel of Luke. 
And in that different account, the objection comes from a Pharisee who says if Jesus had known what kind of woman this was, implying she was a prostitute or at the very, very least very promiscuous, the Pharisee says if he had known what kind of woman this was, then he would not have allowed her to touch him. They're completely different stories. That story takes place in the house of a Pharisee. The other story, that is this man. It says it took place in the house of Simon the leper. I kind of feel like when we get to heaven, Mary's going to bump into people and say, hey, just want to clear it up. Was never a prostitute, was just the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. That was somebody completely different. It was not me. I'm sorry, I just kind of feel obligated to defend Mary's character a little bit, I guess. But this is not the Mary who was promiscuous or possibly a prostitute. She is a friend of Jesus along with her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. And these weren't people that Jesus just came to to minister to. He really considered them friends. He found relief and refreshment when he hung out with them. And he genuinely enjoyed their company. Getting back to our study, verse 39, it says, And she had a sister called... Called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And I want you to underline in your Bibles, sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Without boring you with the details, the original language conveys that both Mary and her sister Martha, who we'll meet in a moment, were both working. They were preparing dinner, getting the house ready, until Jesus started teaching. But when Jesus started teaching, Mary stopped working and gave her full attention to listening to Jesus. And what's interesting about this is that rabbis didn't have female disciples. This is the Middle East 2,000 years ago, but Jesus, very counterculturally, was a rabbi who had female disciples. So make a note of this. Rabbis didn't have female disciples, but Jesus did. You can put that on your outlines. It's your first fill-in. And here we see Mary in the posture of a disciple, listening to Jesus teach. In fact, this Mary will show up only three times in the gospel, and each time she will be found at the feet of Jesus. The very fact that Jesus allows this to happen is a commentary that was intentionally placed in the Bible to prove that in Jesus' theology, disciples can be men or women. It might not seem like a big deal to us in 2015, but it was a massive and radical concept at this time. And there's a good chance that the reason Martha is going to be so bothered by Mary's actions is because she's deeply disturbed by the fact that this situation, Mary taking the role of a disciple of Jesus the rabbi, this situation is just not culturally appropriate. It probably made her very uncomfortable, which is most likely why we read in verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving That phrase, much serving, just means she was fussing over details that were unnecessarily elaborate. You know, she was folding the end of the toilet roll into a triangle like you get in a hotel, just completely unnecessary. We go on and it says, and she approached him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. So don't miss this. Write this down. Martha is literally serving the Lord. She is literally serving the Lord. Jesus, the Lord God Almighty, is in her house and she's serving him dinner, getting the house ready for him. She's literally serving the Lord. And in her mind, as many of us would think, there's nothing more important than serving the Lord. 
And because that's the lens through which she perceives this situation, she tells Jesus, tell Mary to get up and help. There's work to be done. And she's just sitting there like a bum at your feet listening to you. Jesus, you understand that there's nothing more important than serving you. So tell her. But Martha's not going to get the response she's expecting from Jesus. In verse 41, we read, And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Underline that. One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Before we get into the deeper truth that Jesus is pointing to here, I just want to point out one real quick practical application. Have you ever been to the home of someone or a couple or a family that you love and care about, you love hanging out with, only to walk away at the end of your time with them thinking to yourself, you know, I love them, but I kind of feel like our time together was ruined because as I was approaching the front door, it was obvious they hadn't mowed the lawn in a couple of weeks. Or, you know, our time together was ruined because I couldn't help noticing how dusty the blinds were and it just made the rest of our time together meaningless. Or our time was ruined because the food wasn't lavish enough to be Instagram worthy. And that just really bothered me. The whole night was a write-off. That's never, ever happened. That has never happened. When you're with people that you love, you know what you want? You just want to be with them. You just want to give them your attention and experience the joy of them giving you their attention. That's the key to great hospitality, giving people your attention. It's so easy for us as adults to be like the parents who buy their kids everything they could ever want while withholding the one thing their kids really want, which is mom and dad's attention. There's a very real side of this where what Jesus is telling Martha is, I love you guys. I love being with you guys. I came here for you, not for your food. I'm not a college student. I'd rather have a toasted bagel and more time with you than a five-course meal, but no time to fellowship with you. Be hospitable. Welcome people into your home. Eat with people. Nobody's looking for perfection. They're looking for loving fellowship. Everybody is. The Martha mentality will kill hospitality. It will exhaust you and make your guests feel like an inconvenience. I know you can say amen to that. So make a note of this. The key to hospitality is loving fellowship not the perfect meal or the perfect home. Now let's take a look at the deeper meaning and read through verses 41 and 42 again. It says, And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So what is that one thing that Jesus is talking about in verse 42, that one thing that is needed? It's a relationship with Jesus. This is the truth. Fill this in on your outlines. Knowing Jesus is more important than serving Jesus. Knowing Jesus is more important than serving Jesus. What we do with Jesus is far more important than what we do for Jesus. Jesus was speaking, and Mary's actions showed that she believed when Jesus was speaking, there was nothing else more important than hearing whatever he had to say. Nothing. And Jesus affirmed Mary's priority. 
Martha, everything else can wait. If all we end up eating today is yesterday's leftover, then that's okay. Even if we eat nothing, that's okay too. Just don't miss the word that I have for you right now. How many of us need a word from the Lord for our lives right now? And how many of us have probably missed words from the Lord, even when we sensed he wanted to tell us something, simply because we couldn't bring ourselves to slow down, stop, and listen to him. The lawn needed to be mowed. The dog needed to be walked. The kids needed to get to their activities. We couldn't miss the game. When the Lord has a word for you, there is nothing more important than hearing that word and sitting at his feet. There's a time to serve and there's a time to sit. And when Jesus is speaking to you, that's the time to sit and listen. Even more important than evangelizing, more important than serving, more important than anything else in the world is our calling to be lovers of God. If we could do that one thing, love the Lord relationally, if we could do that one thing well, I think we would be amazed at how the Lord would fill in the gaps we're so afraid of, those items on the to-do list that may get missed. We will never find our lives falling apart because we crafted out space for a relationship with Jesus. He will never let that happen. From our old study of the book of Ephesians or our more recent study of the book of Revelation, you may recall the incredible church that was founded in the city of Ephesus during the first century AD. In the modern world center of hedonism, Vegas on crack, there grew an incredible church. It was founded, check out this church's lineage. It was founded by the Apostle Paul who stayed there for an unprecedented amount of time. Usually he stayed in a place for a few weeks or a few months at the most, but in Ephesus, he stayed for three years establishing and leading the church. That's three years of probably daily teaching from the man God used to write the majority of the New Testament. That's serious theological pedigree. The church in Ephesus was spoiled with great Bible teaching. Paul is their founding pastor, and when he has to move on, you know who takes over the church? The prodigy of prodigies in the ministry world, Timothy, the young man, the young pastor with a zeal for the Lord. And just to stack the deck, Also alongside Timothy is another staff pastor named Apollos, whom the scriptures describe as an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. In other words, he was probably the best preacher outside of Jesus Christ during the New Testament era. And he's Timothy's assistant pastor. Not only that, but Paul will later tell the Ephesian church elders that he didn't shun to declare to them the whole counsel of God. In other words, we find out from Paul's comment to the Ephesian church elders that he taught them everything he knew during his three years there. Everything. Eschatology, soteriology, pneumatology, every tology you could think of, he taught them the whole Bible and everything he knew about the Lord during those three years. And Paul warns them that Satan is going to send people into their church to try and destroy it from the inside. 
As a result of that, they become incredibly diligent about learning the Bible and knowing the scriptures so that they can quickly identify any wrong things that are being taught by anyone in the church. And they're doing a great job. They're literally throwing people out who come in to try and teach and spread bad theology and doctrine in the church. About 30 years later, the Apostle John is given his revelation by Jesus, which is recorded in the book of Revelation. And in chapters two and three of that book, Jesus dictates seven letters that he addresses to seven specific churches. And one of them is the church in Ephesus. And there's a real-time practical application to that letter. So we get to find out what happened after Paul met with the elders of the Ephesian church for the last time. How did they do? If you'd like to, you can flip over to Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book in your Bibles, so it's right at the back, Revelation chapter 2. And in Revelation 2.1, we read, To the angel, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. If you want the explanation on that, go online and listen to our message on Revelation 1. This is just talking about Jesus. Verse 2, I know your underlying works, your underlying labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you underline, have persevered, and have patience, and then underline, and have labored for my name's sake, and underline, and have not become weary. If you want all the information on this letter, go and listen to that message online. But I want to highlight one specific aspect of this church for today's study. Make a note of this on your outlines. They made serving God a priority. They made serving God a priority. He says, I know your works. I know your labor. You guys get it. You're working for my kingdom. You've made serving a priority. Good job. I'm proud of you guys. We also see that they persevered. They stayed faithful in a very difficult environment and they had impeccable theology. Jesus says, I love you. I love all you're doing. You're precious and special but I need to share some correction with you. And in verse four, he does. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. And then underline that you have left your first love. And the word used there for love is the original Greek agape, that deep love and affection. Jesus says, you've lost that. You're doing all the stuff. You're doing all the good works. You love good and you hate evil, but the emotion seems to be gone. Instead of being passionate about knowing me, you're passionate about doing stuff for me. To Jesus, our relationship with him is everything. I've taught this before, but it bears mentioning again. Genuinely deep relationships are very, very rare. Most of our relationships are task-oriented. I'm talking about friendships we have because we're trying to accomplish something together. Friends we have because we work together, play on the same sports team, maybe even here at church, we share relationships because we're trying to accomplish some of the same tasks, building a strong marriage, establishing a Christ-centered church, things like that. Even in marriage, it very quickly becomes about the tasks of raising godly kids, building a business together, getting the kids through school, building a home, financial planning, paying off debt, task, task, task. And that's why for many couples, there's a huge problem when the kids leave home because the tasks are suddenly over. 
And suddenly it's revealed that they're not husband and wife. They've been co-workers for years. And there's no relationship that exists purely for the reason of knowing and being with each other. That's the thing about intimacy. Intimacy is about being known by someone and knowing someone else and both persons accepting the other wholeheartedly. That's what intimacy is. So write this down. In a task-driven relationship, you stand shoulder to shoulder. You face the world. You take on the task together. But in an intimacy-based relationship, you stand face to face. There's a relationship there, and that's the difference. The Ephesians got so busy with serving Jesus that they forgot about relating to Jesus, just being with him. Martha was convinced that she was doing her part by serving. Jesus was the Messiah and she was using her gifts to make this elaborate meal. She was, in her own way, doing ministry shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. But Mary, Mary was face to face with Jesus. As believers, it's very easy for the same thing to happen to us. We're going through the motions of the Christian life. There's no fire or crisis, but there's no real relationship. And we find ourselves close to Jesus only when we need him to help us accomplish a task or get through something or over something or past something. And that's not a real relationship. This happens to all of us. We're drawn back again and again to a works-based and religious faith. But thankfully, Jesus gives us the remedy. In verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Underline, from where. Jesus says, remember what it was like when you first met me, when you didn't even know all about the stuff that you should be doing? You didn't even know what you should be doing. Think back to that. And here's the exhortation. Here's what we need to do if we find our relationship with Jesus dead in the water. Repent and do the first works. To repent simply means to change your mind. Jesus says, change your mind about how you're living and go back to doing the things you did at first, the things you used to do, the things you were doing when we first met. Jesus is talking about the things we did when we were first saved. And do you know what we did? Not a list of tasks, not a checklist, because we really didn't know what was supposed to be on the checklist. What we did was read the Bible, not to say I had my daily time with Jesus today, but we read our Bible just to know Jesus more, just to see more of him, to learn more about him. We prayed just to talk with God. We worshiped him just because we were so excited to have the opportunity to tell him again that we loved him. We asked him to speak to us just because we wanted to hear his voice, just because we wanted to feel his nearness. Jesus calls the Ephesians to go back to focusing on the relationship. Write this down. You and I were created first and foremost to know God, to be in relationship with him. Everything flows out of that. And doesn't that really make the most sense when you think about it? Because if you don't believe or understand that we were created for a relationship with God, the only alternative explanation is that God had something he wanted to accomplish, but he needed a bunch of minions to accomplish it. And he said, so I'll make people because I need some help to accomplish my will. But God doesn't need anything. He lacks nothing. He's fully complete in himself. 
So if you don't believe that we were simply created for a relationship with God, then you believe that somehow God needs us and he doesn't need us. He wants us. He wants us in a relationship with him. That's what he made us for. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. We were created to know him and love him and be known and loved by him. Everything else flows out of that. The church in Ephesus lost their first love. Their service came at the cost of relationship with Jesus. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that activity constitutes a relationship. Activity does not constitute a relationship. Write this down. Activity is never a substitute for relationship. My pastor used to give the great illustration of, imagine if you're a single lady and there's a guy who decides that he wants to pursue you. And so he just shows up at your house one day and he washes your car and then he leaves. The next day he shows up and he mows your lawn and he leaves. And by the third day, you might've called the police, but let's just say he's a really, really sharp looking guy and he has a really good reputation. And you come out and you say, oh, are, are you going to come hang out with me? You want, you want to sit here on the porch and chat a little bit? And he says, no, nah, I noticed that your gutters needed cleaning. So I'm just going to get right on that and then I'll go home because th- this, is, this is my relationship with you is doing all this stuff. That would not be a real relationship. And I know you ladies out there, you're thinking, that doesn't sound so bad. That sounds fantastic. Where can I find this guy? But I promise, after a little while, you get tired of it. I know you still don't believe me, but trust me, I'm right. Sooner or later, you would want more out of the relationship than just doing stuff. And him claiming that that proves that he loves you and that's all the relationship that's needed. We can do all the stuff in the world for Jesus. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that it's a substitute for a relationship with him. Back in 2007, a collection of Mother Teresa's private letters to her spiritual advisors was published. You can debate the ethics of that on your own. But what is astounding and profoundly sad is to read about the loneliness of a woman who dedicated her life to serving God believing it would create a deeper relationship with him. She loved the Lord and she craved a deeper relationship with him. And the only way she knew how to do that was to serve like crazy in the most difficult, dark place possible, believing that that would result in deeper intimacy with Jesus. I want to read you some quotes from an article about this book. It says, 10 years after her death, a new book of Mother Teresa's personal letters illustrates a profound and private spiritual struggle, much of it unknown to the world that would come to embrace her as a living saint. In one letter from 1962, Teresa even mused about how her sense of spiritual desolation might impact the bid to make her a saint. If I ever become a saint, I will surely be one of darkness, she wrote. I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. In 1942, Mother Teresa made a vow not to refuse Jesus anything. Starting in 1946, she experienced several mystical encounters with Jesus, whom she called the voice, asking her to serve the poorest of the poor. The darkness was her term for feelings of loneliness and abandonment when her communion with Jesus ended. She says in a letter, I came to India with the desire to love Jesus as he has never been loved before. She was a woman passionately in love with Jesus. Yet no sooner did Teresa start her work in the slums of Calcutta than she began to feel the intense absence of Jesus, 
a state that lasted until her death, according to her letters. The paradox is that for her to be a light, she was to be in darkness. In a letter estimated to be from 1961, Teresa wrote, Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. The torture and pain I can't explain. Catholic saints typically experience a dark night of the soul, in the words of 16th century priest St. John of the Cross but never as long as the whole working life Teresa experienced. She moves into the ranks of the greatest saints, and there are very few who have suffered such an extended dark night. The author, however, stressed that Teresa's belief in God never wavered, just her feeling of connection to Jesus, especially after her intense mystical experiences. How tragic that Mother Teresa was never taught the truth that God is available Jesus is available relationally to all of us, all the time, and that his nearness, his love for us, his availability has nothing to do with what we do for him. It has nothing to do with our good works. She spent her life disappointed that her works did not result in greater intimacy with Jesus. On the flip side, some of you know the story of Martin Luther, the instigator of the Reformation in the Middle Ages. He was a man who longed for a relationship with Jesus, but found himself in a deep, dark depression over his inability to do enough good works to earn a close relationship with the Lord. He was just overwhelmed by his own sinfulness and the fact that he could do nothing to cleanse himself of his sin. However, gloriously, Martin Luther was led to the truth in God's word that we are brought into a relationship with God by our faith in his grace. And though his theology wasn't perfect, Martin Luther led a movement that turned the world upside down with the good news that every man and woman can know God personally, have a relationship with him because of his grace, because of his goodness, not because of anything we've done. And Martin Luther lived out much of his life enjoying a relationship with God based on the goodness of God. We were saved to know the Lord We were saved for a relationship with him. And speaking of the one thing, that which Jesus said was the only thing that was needed, that phrase, one thing, shows up in the 27th Psalm, written by David, a man forever known as one after God's own heart, the man who had one thing going for him, an incredible relationship with the Lord. David wrote this, one thing. I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The one thing that David wanted was to be in the house of the Lord, not to do anything, but to be somewhere, to be in the place of relationship with the Lord. That was it. And God loved David. God favored David highly, forgave David much because he had that heart. Church, hear me on this. We serve Jesus because we love Jesus. We serve him because we have a relationship with him. If you serve the Lord in the hopes that your service to him will create a relationship, you're going to get very bitter very quickly. Jesus never said, 
keeping my commandments, serving me. These things will make you love me. No, Jesus said, if you really love me, you'll find yourself serving. You'll find yourself keeping my commands. The difference is subtle and yet enormous. In the first approach, we hope that our actions will produce a relationship. In the second approach, the Jesus way, our relationship with him produces actions in our lives. The first approach has already been tried and failed miserably. The first approach is called the law. And we have the whole Old Testament, century after century, detailing man's epic failure to produce good enough actions to create a relationship with the Lord. The second approach is what Jesus came to offer us. It's him writing his law on our hearts. It's him being perfect in our place so that our actions, or lack of them, don't get in the way of our relationship with him. Jesus changed everything. Through him, it's now about relationship first. We don't have to be perfect to have a relationship with him. And now out of that relationship, we serve him. We obey him. We follow his instructions. There's nothing you can do that will create or earn you a relationship with Jesus. It's the free gift of grace. And Jesus has asked us to simply focus on our relationship with him and let the relationship drive what we do as the relationship shapes who we are. The stronger our relationship is with Jesus, the more like him we become and the more our actions change. Let me say that again. The stronger our relationship is with Jesus, the more like him we become and the more our actions change. It is a tragic irony that during the Christmas season, which celebrates Jesus coming to earth to die as a man and save us all, most Christians will find themselves so busy with the festivities that their personal relationship with the Lord will really suffer if not be completely ignored. Many believers right now are so busy with the celebrations around Jesus that they're not really relating to Jesus on a one-on-one level. Which do you think matters more to Jesus? That we attend every Christmas party, get the food just right, attend all the services and plays, get the perfect gifts, or that we abide in him, relate to him, talk with him, know him. If you can do all the stuff and still maintain your personal relationship with Jesus, that's great, more power to you. But what a tragic irony it would be to sacrifice your relationship with Jesus for the sake of celebrating Jesus. Don't make that mistake this Advent season. Don't make that mistake. Let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to the earth. And Jesus, thank you for coming to the earth. Thank you that through your work on the cross, we can have a relationship with you because of what you've done, not because of anything we've done. Father, our lives are full of things that are important. They are important. We have spouses and children and jobs and extended family and activities and so many good things. But Lord, you are what is better. You are what is better. Lord, a moment in your presence is worth more than a million moments anywhere else. And I pray that as we structure our days, 
that priority would be revealed in our priorities. Lord, I pray that as we structure our days, you would be our greatest concern. We would value our relationship with you more than anything else. Lord, give us the strength to really follow through with this because we love you and we want our lives to reflect the fact that we love you. We want anyone looking from the outside in at our lives to have no doubt that you are our greatest concern and our greatest priority. We love you so much, Jesus. It's in your mighty name we pray, amen. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.